This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to Florida State men's basketball coach, Leonard Hamilton. There are not many coaches or any people around that have lived a life quite like Leonard Hamilton's. He grew up in the segregated South with no real intention of creating a life in sports. And now he's coached basketball for over 30 years with stints in both college and the NBA. You'll hear incredible stories of happenstance, good luck, and sheer hard work that took him from being the first basketball player ever at Gaston Community College to the first black player at UT Martin, almost becoming a head coach at age 26, quitting a job at Dow Chemical to drive to Lexington, Kentucky, and every other twist and turn in a very fascinating career. Along the way, he's remained grounded in his faith. That faith also led him to co-found a gospel music label, Five Oceans, which is a project that he has big plans for. That is, after he wins a national championship. Here's my interview with Leonard Hamilton. I kind of want to start off the court a little bit about your upbringing. I think a lot of people see successful coaches and don't always see where they started. And you've been open about growing up in segregated North Carolina, you know, in a family that struggled financially. And I'm wondering if you kind of speak to that as how that grounds you as a person and what you learn from an upbringing in that setting. When you grow up in those types of environments and you see everyone else around you living the same way, you don't really know any different. I remember as a, as a toddler, three, four, five years old, I used to go with my grandmother and she was, uh, I guess you call her a modern day nanny, where she would take care of rich people's home and their children and she cooked and cleaned. And, and be honest with you, here my grandmother was basically raising kids, uh, white kids that were treated her like she was part of their family. And occasionally she would take me with them. But with, with the exception of that interaction, I very seldom went on the other side of the tracks. We stayed in our neighborhood and we kind of existed in, in, in that fashion. But one thing that was always consistent in our life was uh, our religious beliefs. Even though doing all of those challenges that we had, we always had faith that things would, would, would not be that way all the time. I remember my grandmother taking me to church with her every Sunday night, and it was a different church every Sunday night. And I remember going to holiness churches, uh, Pentecostal churches, House of Prayer churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, but we were always in church. And as I grew older and spent more time with my mom and dad, we never really lived more than 50 yards from our church. And everything that we did in life centered around the church, Sunday school, BTU, Baptist Training Union, Vacation Bible School, the Youth Choir, the Ursula Board, the 
Christmas programs, the Easter programs, and you look forward to vacation Bible school because they always took you on a trip. So my point to you, and we grew up with faith that even though we didn't necessarily have anything, somehow or another, things would be okay. That was just part of our upbringing. That's part of our culture. I remember I could stand on my back porch and hit the church with a rock. I threw over one house and hit the church. That's how close we were. I remember many times after choir practice, we would, after choir practice, we would sit on the church step and sing to 10, 11 o'clock at night just because that's what we enjoyed doing. That was part of our culture, part of who we were. We would go to church on Sunday, sing in the choir for, on Sunday morning, go do two programs in the afternoon, come back and do the evening service and go do another program at night. That was just part of our Sunday, what we did. So I grew up with that, and that was part of my, my upbringing. And I was just very fortunate, though, to have a father who um, believed in making you earn everything. You know, he didn't believe in giving you things. He wanted you to earn it. And he always said, you can't control the, sometimes the outcome of the circumstances, but you can't ever let anybody give more effort than you. You can't ever let anybody outwork you. Those things hung with me. I remember in the fourth grade, being out in the yard, and him saying, you can't let anybody outwork you. He always said that if your boss, your coach, your supervisor might make a mistake if you let it be close, and pick someone else. So don't ever come to him complaining about not being able to be successful. He drove that in me and my brothers. And so you really had no real, but one outcome. You had to succeed, you had to be successful. My father went to the ninth grade, my mother went to the seventh grade. They never had opportunities because they didn't have education. And they always said, you have to get your education, but he made it very clear, he had absolutely no money to help contribute to you getting your education. All your life, you grow up saying, how am I going to go to college? How am I going to get the degree? And you always had the army to fall back on, go do your time in army, and then come back and get a GI Bill and get your education. And that was plan B, and ended up probably being plan A for me because I had more football scholarship. But I came down, you know, I always tell people, my steps have always been ordered because I was going to join the army, and I came down with a skin irritation that didn't allow me to show up for football camp. So then that was good because later on I found I had a cracked vertebrae in my neck. And then I was going to join the Army. And then by coincidence, the local community college right outside my hometown decided they were going to start a basketball program. And they hired a new coach. And he was trying to run around in the community in the area recruiting players. So probably less than three or four days before I joined the Army, he caught up with me and taught me into going to Gas and Community College as opposed to joining the Army. And so that's kind of how my educational journey started. That's where it all began in terms of me going to school, getting my education, earning a scholarship, and I was able to go to school and then getting my degree. I adopted my brother Willie. He lived with me when he was 17. He goes to college and both of his children go to college. My brother Barry didn't have kids. I adopted him. My brother John went to college and his kid goes to college to get their degree. I adopted my sister Pam when she was 13. She went to college. Her son went to college. So my point is that getting my education changed the whole culture of my family. And so, but along the way, I just always knew I had to work hard and I couldn't make any excuses. And I think that's probably been the two biggest reasons why I've been successful is that I've always tried to give every ounce of effort I had and everything that I've done 
And I never wanted to make any excuses. If I didn't get the job done, I just wanted to figure out how to get it done. You were a lot of firsts, right? The first Black player at UT Martin, the first Black assistant at Kentucky. And as a woman in a male-dominated field, I have admiration for firsts who've paved the way for me. And I wonder what that feels like in the moment, if there's pressure to make sure that things go fine for the next. The only time that I shied away from being the freshest at my senior year in high school they wanted me to integrate the local school, Hunter Huss, and I wanted to finish high school at my school, Highland. Going to Gas Community College, being the first basketball player they had there because they just, they were starting a new program. Going to UT Martin, I didn't know I was going to be the first black basketball player there. Nobody ever told me that. When I went to school there, you know, I really didn't, didn't know that was the case. And I was so motivated by just wanting to get my education. You know, it really didn't dawn on me there I think it was 150 black folks on campus when I got there, but that never really entered into my mind. It's, I never thought about it. I've always been comfortable and confident in my own skin. And all I was thinking about was trying to make sure I was successful. It was never part of the discussion that I was the first black player to play there. Became obvious, but it wasn't something that I ever thought about, dwelled on it. But because I, I think I always tried to conduct myself in the right way. And I think that's where my moral background, going to church and being from a religious background, just being around parents who taught me discipline and hard work and just try to get the job done without making excuses. I think that's where all of that kicked in. And once I got to school, I realized that, you know, I was there just to get my degree and try to have a better way of life. I wanted to find a way to get my brothers out of that. Eight of us living in a four-room house, four boys on two bunk beds in one room. You know, bathroom on the back porch, no hot and cold running water. And we took our baths in 10 tubs in the corner. I just wanted to not have to live like that again. And so all I was thinking about doing was just getting it done and being able to set an example so I could get my brothers and my family and my brothers and sisters and set an example for them. So along the journey, I just did not worry about me being the first of anything. I just wanted to get it done, get the job done. And not wanting to make any excuses and use any any negative thoughts to keep me from being successful. So I know after college, you thought about joining the Army Reserve and then coaching kind of found you. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of explain how that happened for you. Well, I, I really didn't have anything I really wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was this close to joining the Marines. And I backed out of that after I talked to my coach. He wanted me to think about going into the Army Reserve. So he had done some preliminary arrangements for me to go meet with them. And then he, he said that there was a graduate assistant position open at Austin P for me to go to graduate school and be a graduate assistant basketball coach. So he wrote Coach Kelly a letter and they wanted me to come up for an interview. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, here I was, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to find my way in life. So I go from Marines to Army Reserve. So now I'm going to apply for this graduate assistant position. I mean, I interviewed and got the job, you know. And the interesting thing about that scenario was that he had one assistant and I was the graduate assistant. And the full-time assistant coach became ill in January and had to resign. Now I'm in a position where I have all the responsibilities of a full-time assistant coach. Now I'm in graduate school, I'm married, I've adopted my brother, and I have a child. I got all that responsibility. 
And then I then I got the responsibilities of being his only assistant. He's on one end of the coach coaching. I'm on the other end, and I'm coaching guys that are older than I am. In other words, I had to grow up fast. I had to learn how to communicate, learn how to be on point with my teaching, my understanding of the drills. So I was thrown right into the fire. I mean, just right in it, and I had to sink or swim. And it's not easy when you're trying to motivate and communicate with guys who basically <laughs> are older than you. And so that's how I got started. And I had to succeed. I had to learn. I had to grow. And then after that first year, I had to drop out the spring semester academically because I had so much responsibility as a graduate assistant. And I asked Coach Kelly to let me go on the road recruiting. And he said, sure. He didn't hesitate. And so there I am on my way to New York, and I'd never been to New York in my life. And so I show up. He gave me money to go on the road recruiting. And he said, go. So now I got to make my hotel reservations. I got, I don't know where I'm going, where I'm staying. I didn't know you pulled to make reservations before you travel. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know you had to have a credit card to rent a car. So I show up at LaGuardia Airport and I walk up to the counter and say, I'd like to rent a car. And she says, uh, let me see your credit card. I said, I don't have a credit card, but I got cash. She said, we can't rent you a car <laughs> without a credit card. But I had never heard of a credit card, to be honest with you. <laughs> Nobody in my family had a credit card. I, I didn't know what a credit card really was, to tell you the truth. And so I said, I, I got to catch a taxi. And I, I, I caught a taxi. And I said, take me to an inexpensive hotel. <laughs> that was a bad word. <laughs> to uh, close to New York City Community College. And he took me in. I checked into this hotel. Uh, he took me to an inexpensive hotel near where I was going. <laughs> it, it was had straw mattresses and radiators. and. It was really interesting, but I had to hurry up and get to the games. I went to the gym and met some people and developed some relationships and, and got away to meet with them the next day. The two kids I met on that trip in two days. Now, I didn't know what I was doing. So I can't say that I was smart and experienced and talented. I was just working hard. And the one kid was our starting point guard. And the other kid averaged 27 points and nine rebounds a game as a freshman. He had 51 twice during the season. So now everybody thought that I knew what I was doing. And I always tell people, <laughs> my steps have always been ordered by God because how do I go to New York City, don't know where I'm going, don't know where to stay. And I come out of that on the first trip to New York with my starting point guard and a leading scorer. And we win the conference the next year with the kids I recruited when I didn't really know what I was doing. That wasn't me. That was anointing around me in my life, leading and guiding me in the right direction. Because we won the conference two years in a row with the kids I was able to recruit. By coincidence, my the first year we went to the NCAA tournament in the history of the school, we lost in a double overtime game to the University of Kentucky in the NCAA tournament. That year we go to the NCAA tournament. And so that was my connection with Joe Hall in Kentucky. I finished another year. We win the conference, go to the NCAA tournament. And my head coach is starting getting mentioned for jobs. And so I said, well, then I must going to be the next head coach at Austin P. Now, I don't realize there's not a whole lot of black coaches, coaching, period. And I'm 26, which means that most of the time it's hard to get a head coach job at 26. But in my mind, I didn't realize that, but neither did I care. I thought that I was capable and prepared to be the next head coach at Austin P. So I I set an appointment up with the president to go, 
and 26. I don't know where this, where this confidence came from or this foolishness, one or the other. In that climate, that was not a, I hadn't thought about that. This was like, I didn't think about being the first black basketball player. I, I just thought I was qualified. I thought I was confident. I thought I could get the job done. And when I realized that that opportunity was not going to be available for me, I became hurt. And I was irrationally or emotionally made a decision. That was on a Wednesday. I resigned on Thursday, moved out of my house on Friday, and went to work at Dow Chemical on Monday in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, I, which means I tried to get out of coaching because I didn't think that I was going to have an opportunity to become a head coach because I was black. But my first day on the job, Joe Hall from Kentucky called a hotel and wondered what I'd be interested in. Talk to him about assistant coach position he had on his staff. Now, I tried to mess up, but it's like this God, this angel, this guardian angel sitting on my shoulder would not let me make that bad decision that I tried to make. I tried to go to the Marines. I tried to go to the Army. I tried to get out of coaching. All those things, my path has always been led back to what I think God's purpose God had for me on, on earth. Joe Hall called and he said, would you be interested? He said, I'm out of town today. I'm coming back late Tuesday. Would you come up and talk to me on Wednesday? Well, I recognized that I just started working Dow Chemical on Monday and that I might could get away with not being in work on Tuesday because I can say I'm looking for the house. I hung the phone up and said, Coach, can I call you back? And I made my reservation and flew in there Monday night so I could see him that Tuesday afternoon when he got back. And I met with him on that Tuesday and we met for three or four hours and I said, Coach, you got anything else we need to talk about? I said, if not, then I, I make, can you make arrangements for me going back to Charlotte? I said, I'm going to tell you four things. I'll be loyal to you. I'm going to get you in trouble. Nobody outwork me, and you'll have players. I said, but if you're not going to hire me, I'm going to be the number one chemical salesman in the country. And I flew back to Charlotte. And I was perfectly moving out of my hotel that next Monday to my apartment with my family. He called me at lunch, offered me the job. I walked back across the street with everybody gone, to whom it may concern. I resigned my position effectively immediately. Thank you for the opportunity. Jumped in my car and drove to Lexington. And that's how my basketball career has been. At that point, you're back in coaching and you're still an assistant. Are you worried that you're never going to get a head coaching opportunity? Does that come into your mind as, as you go through these next few years of your career? Well, this, this, this was my mindset. In order for me to get a head job, I first had to do good with the job that I had. I was not going to get caught up in, in some type of pipe dream. I knew that in order for me to have an opportunity to be a job, I was going to the number one program in the history of college basketball. They were winning before I got there, and they're going to be winning while I'm there. So I had to find a way to contribute to a great program so at least I could be associated with their success and not someone only being a part of being successful because that's what they've always had done. I had to find a way to make an impact. I wanted to stay there and be focused and contribute to the success of the program so that people would know that I was not there just riding on the coattails of a successful program, that I was contributing to a successful program. And plus, I wanted to learn. That was an opportunity for me to be a part of Austin P, a building program. Now opportunity for me to go and learn what it's like be in that pressure cooker, learn how to do it at the top, learn how to be involved in those pressure games when everybody's coming at you, the class of the program, the weight training condition, the academic, the tutoring, all of the things that went on in that program that made it the number one program 
I wanted to make sure I learned running the camps and clinics and all the, the television shows, the radio shows, all those things I wanted to make sure that I had knowledge of so that when, if and when the opportunity came available, that I'd be prepared. That was all I was thinking about. You've talked about how the things that you're really proud of aren't reaching X amount of Elite Eights or Sweet Sixteens. It's about getting phone calls on Father's Day and invites to weddings and, and kind of being there for those key moments. And I wonder, as a college coach, as opposed to the pros, how much more of that there is or the rewarding nature of really helping someone go through that period of time in their life while they're also getting an education and potentially changing things for their family. Well, now, that's the reward at the end. The most important thing we do is taking teenagers, 17, 18-year-old teenagers, at the most impressionable and vulnerable time in their lives. Big, strong guys who all want to be great basketball players. They all want to play professional, most of the time in some kind of way or shape or form. But when they still are forming their philosophies about life, how to deal with the opposite sex, how to handle stress, how to be organized, how to hold yourself accountable, how to become a leader, how to become a follower, being a good teammate, following directions, making sacrifices for each other and for the good of the team. You're part of trying to build a foundation for them to be successful in life. And if you don't take those fundamental teaching points seriously, and if you're only concerned about the athletic portion of winning, you really are missing out on the most important reason why we have this opportunity to work with young people at this particular juncture in their life. And that's what I enjoy the most. I realize because of how much it meant to me that even though everybody wants to play some form of professional basketball, everybody thinks they're going to the NBA. There's 5,200 college Division I basketball players. Only 20 to 25 NBA opportunities become available every year. Now, that's for everybody, the whole world. That's for the elite, and the elite players have those opportunities. Well, 5,180, maybe 75, won't have that opportunity. That's if all 25 of them come straight from college and not Europe and everywhere else. And I realized that even though some of the others might have a G League, they might go to Europe, they might play, but most of them, I'd say 80% of them at some point in time, by the time they get to be 27, 28 years old, they're going to be married with kids and the family and in the workforce. You're going to have a few that are fortunate enough to be in that elite level category. But somehow or another, that has gotten lost in the shuffle because all our rules, all the media talks about, all the magazines sell papers about is the elite of the elite and has created kind of a cult following by any and everybody. But deep down inside, a lot of these guys are going to be just like Leonard Hamilton need their degrees so they can be assured of having a plan B to fall back on. Now, that's the biggest challenge we have in trying to keep the educational growth intact because we realize at some point in time, even if they play, most guys will be at some point doing a job at some point in time, even if they play till they're 30. Now, if you're fortunate enough to to make millions of dollars, I guess maybe you might not be as concerned, but that's not the case most of the time. So the value of education, I think, is important. Uh, it's probably worth about $250,000 for years. 
is important. The degree, but what they learn, how they learn, the, the lessons that they learn on this journey prepares them to be leaders, husbands, fathers, neighbors, and good citizens. We spend more time coaching their minds and their spirits than we do their bodies. If the if only thing we have is NCAA watches and rings and trips and plaques and trophies and awards to show for all our hard work and our players who helped us obtain those things are not having a nice way of life, then somebody's been cheated. And I want to make sure that because I had so many people help me along the way, I want to fulfill what I feel is my purpose is on earth is to do my job in helping and leading and guiding our young people and preparing them for life. And I mean that with all my heart and all my soul. And I try to create that environment. And I'm proud of the fact that our graduation rate reflects that's what we're doing. What do you think the key is to a long coaching career? Like what, what sustains you day in and day out in new seasons and the repetitive nature of the career? I mean, there's got to be certain things that really get the juices flowing. And the first thing, I enjoy going to work every day. I do not have a down day. I'm, some days are more challenging than others, but I look forward to challenges. I think that's when we're at our best. If you only are happy and feel good about things when things are going good, then I'm not real sure that you're going to last in any type of profession. I think that my faith kicks in and that I have a belief that if you do things the right way, good things are going to happen. I really believe that you know, my favorite passage in the Bible is the book of James, first chapter, second, third, and fourth verse, where it says, count it all joy in times of diverse temptations because the testing of your faith builds perseverance testing of your faith, counting all joy when things are going good, because you can be happy, means you have success, counting all joy when things are going bad, because that's a time of learning, growing, and maturing, and learning how to make sure you overcome obstacles so you don't have any of those bad times. Counting all joy and die, die with temptation because the testing of your faith builds perseverance. You get stronger and wiser and gain wisdom through the struggle. So when challenges come, I don't panic. I just believe confident that we're going to figure out a way how to solve it, correct it, fix it, and make it better. And that's always been my approach. The more stressful, the more challenging, for the most part, the calmer I, I become and the more focused I become. And fortunate for me, I don't major in minors. Little things don't bother me. You know, I know that nobody's perfect. Everything's not going to always be right. But I think one thing we do, we always try to prepare for the unexpected. You know, in life, a little rain must fall. So you have to be prepared. Put your umbrella out and keep on moving. Can't worry about it because sometimes rain helps you grow. You know, so that's been my philosophy. And I think that because I don't allow myself to get stressed over challenges and I enjoy what I do, I think it keeps me motivated and keeps me feeling good about what I do. And I don't lose sight of the fact that the most important thing we do is raising in the absence of parents. We are representing them. And I realize when parents trust you with their most precious commodity, their child, that you have to accept that responsibility in its entirety. You're going to trust your 17, 18 year old child to come play for me. So I got to represent you. And because of the trust you faith in me, I got to make sure I treat your child like I want you to treat mine if mine was with you. And so everything we do, Everything we think about, 
is always with that in mind, what's best for the student athletes. And that's where we run our program. And so, you know, I realize things are not going to always go right. I know you might have been perfect as a child, 17, 18 years old. I can see that halo behind you. Sure, yeah, head. totally. I, let's, I can let's see that. I can see that <laughs> the place where the wings used to fit on, on your back there, you probably took them off. And that halo, I don't see the halo, but I see the stem where the halo fit. Your parents, you went, you, you went to curfew, you did everything right. You did everything pretty well. My players are not that way, you know? And I understand that. So we operate in a preventive posture from the beginning. We set our rules and they part of the helping us set the rules. So we have a kind of an orderly existence. You know, some of us did miss curfew by five minutes occasionally. Okay, not a not a total angel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Switching gears, you've obviously talked a lot about your relationship with church and your faith. And I think one thing that not a lot of people know is that you're a co-founder of a gospel music label. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how gospel music in particular has impacted your life. You know, I was reading that you did sing in a choir growing up. I mean, you were talking mm-hmm. about being near churches. How good of a singer are you? I think David said that you make a joyful noise. And sometimes I make an awful noise. Okay, but I'm praising, you know what I mean? It might be awful, but I, <laughs> but I do believe in praising. It, I, it's, it's joyful, but it might be awful, but, but it's praiseworthy. I want you to know that. <laughs> no, uh, that was just kind of part of our culture. We, we as a race of people, sometimes during those times when things uh, were not going well, we would sing our way into feeling better, you know, and that was our way of, of crying out, I guess. But I found that that was just part of what we did. We, we had a, a, a youth choir and we had a, another choir where we really enjoyed making music and traveling and going to other churches and performing. That was really part of just what we looked forward to. Just like some people look forward to going to basketball games. We look forward to going to choir practice. We look forward to singing on Sunday. And we really look forward to going, leaving our church and going to other churches and participating in different programs. That was just what we enjoyed doing. It was just as much a part of our existence as some guys want to go play golf, some guys want to go fishing. That was just who we are and was part of our, what excited us and what brought us together. And I've always had a tremendous appreciation for skill, vocal talent, and how you take voices and mix them and make harmony. I just think that's just a beautiful feeling. And when the words, along with the harmony and the vocalization, it just reaches your your soul and and makes you feel good about things and gives you hope and belief in, in your faith. It's almost sometimes words can't describe how we grew up. And so I don't know when going to college, when I went off to college at UT Martin, I don't think I ever missed a Sunday going to church. I mean, regardless of, of what we did on Saturday night and how late I got in, I don't think, I don't ever remember missing a day, a Sunday of going to church when I was in college. Because that's what it was like growing up. It's just kind of part of who we have been and who we wanted to be. So I noticed that you have a lot of people who travel, they're evangelists, that they're vocalists, and they do it out of the love and the passion for their worship. And 
I don't want to lose any money in the gospel business, but I want to provide a vehicle by which those people can realize their dream, promote and market their religion, their music, and then hopefully one day, if whenever I really have time to concentrate on it, some people will be able to make a, a living worshiping and serving the Lord. So I really feel like I have excellent music, but I have kind of taken a step back because right now I want to win a national title and I want my music to win a national title. And I can't do both at the same time. But at some point, I'm going to re-energize. And I've learned a lot with the two albums that we have completed. But when I re-energize and reorganize my structure, I wanted to be a little more professional than I have time to do. I don't want my focus to be divided. I want to give all my attention to my basketball program. And I like to have people in place that know a lot more about running a record label than the one I have knowledge of and have time to do. My plan is to is put people in place that know a little bit more about what they're doing than I do so I can concentrate on doing what I really, really love to do as well. So that's kind of where I am at this point with it. And I mean, I, mean, I stay in contact with my guys. I got two artists that, that are really, really good and they still are doing their thing independently. But when we crank it up, I want people in place that are a little more knowledgeable about how to take that to the next level. I've done about all I can do. Now, I want to be at a level of excellence, but I don't have the, the expertise in that area. But this wait now, we're going to be looking forward to my guys winning those awards, the Dove Award and all the other religious uh, award shows. I'm going to be watching on TV from wherever the, the NCAA tournament. <laughs> our interview with Leonard Hamilton. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.